0: Geraldine Fitzgerald and John Houseman sat down with moderator Ike Chamberlain for an interview in September of 1986. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theater Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited.
1: Hello, uh, welcome. My name is Ike Chamblin, and we're here to talk with Geraldine Fitzgerald and John Houseman about good directors. And, uh, I think we should talk kind of easy, and if you have things to say, please ask. I thought I'd, just to get us started, Milo O'Shea was quoted in the paper years ago uh, that he had worked with five great directors. This was before he had worked with you, so now would would be six. Yeah, but, um, but he said that they all had a very individual way of talking and working. Do you think
2: that's true? Or? Oh, of course. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I, how, how could it be otherwise? I'd, I mean, they may even have different uh, criteria of relationship to an actor, you know, but they certainly talk differently. Yes. Some have deep voices. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, um, could you tell? Uh, could either of you tell us a director you particularly
2: like working mm-hmm. with and oh, and oh. why? Or? Well, William Starz Geraldine, because I'm not an actor; I'm just a television actor. Well, well, could you tell us about uh, a directing particularly like? Well, with?
3: I, yes, I certainly could, because I've worked with quite a few very interesting directors. And I'm going to start off by saying that the director, I particularly like working with his non-husband. Good, oh. Good. Uh, I've done that twice, uh, once in a kind of collage of pieces about women, which he put together. That was fun. That was fun. And we toured around in the bus. William Hickey and Barbara Barry and a kind other of people and John himself, who was the moderator. And I think it was the first time, really, that he had appeared as a performer. Because I remember going to him one night and saying, "You, you must become an actor. You must." He said, "Oh,
2: tush, tush." <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but tell them also how I sent you out. It had nothing to do with the art of acting. I sent you and Bill Hickey and Barbara Barry in a bus. It had defective brakes. <laughs>
3: that's true.
2: And it caught fire on the top of the great smoky mountains. Nice. Uh, <laughs> <Well>, that had nothing to do with direction. That must have been fun. That's, that's true.
3: It did happen. Mm. And you uh, got out of the bus and stopped. Stopped at a little general store, the only store in this whole, you know, seemingly for hundreds of miles. It sold everything, particularly guns. You know, it's so amazing to see within, like, the good monkey apples and the oranges. And uh, he was very shocked at and Another director that I like working very much with is here today, and that's John Weary, And uh, I worked with him in a play of D.H. E. Lawrence. It's a, a wonderful play which is got uh, me something to do something about. Do you remember, was it Saturday,
4: Sunday
3: night? It was or uh, early, uh, um, a good one. A coal mine
4: Sunday night? Yeah, yeah. Yes, a collier's Friday night. Collier's Friday night.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's just been done in London. Yes. Yeah. Of either that or one of the other Lawrence plays. Yeah. It's
4: a great trilogy. Yeah. Because this is his centennial. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> William
3: meanwhile, William Wyler, the director of, of Wuthering Heights and uh, an extraordinary director in terms of the results that he achieved. with nobody like him in the field he worked in. He was very, very hard for actors
0: to work with, especially
3: in, in those days, by which I mean before war. Um, well, he didn't exactly know what he wanted. He had amazing taste. When he saw it, he knew what it was. But, and he had no knowledge, because he'd been making... Uh, he'd started off making Western movies. He had no knowledge that professional actors were very easily abashed thought that their egos were very strong, could stand up to any treatment that he gave them. For example, whenever we met in the morning, he would sit under the camera with the daily paper. And then he would turn to to Olivier and Merle and David and whoever and myself. And he'd say, Now show me show me what you're going to do. <laughs> and then he would, and then he would say, That is
5: <laughs> <laughs> and he would get in behind
3: his paper and would stay there until he had put together something else. And then he'd say, oh, no. no, no, no. This had gone, you know, for two hours sometimes gone. And then he would say, no, it's all awful. And perhaps the best one was the first one. do so mm. do that. And then he'd start saying, Lights coming. He'd say, do not remember what the first one was now?
5: <laughs>
3: and uh, we used to get very upset with him. But when we saw the finished result, because he would also take fifty takes of every scene, he had made a kind of distillation of whatever one was. And uh, the results on the screen were remarkable. I any mean, of you ever seen any of his work? Mm-hmm. Weeks, uh,
2: and we won't be together. Also he he was in the category of film director. Yes, right. uh, just as there are film performers. Yes. I once made a picture with Alan Ladd. And uh, it was the most horrifying thing. You'd go on the set and you'd see this midget. In the first place, he was probably mm-hmm. on a box anyway, or his active rig was in a trench. <laughs>
6: and
2: then absolutely nothing happened. He sort of muttered in a slightly illiterate fashion mm-hmm. into the camera, and then you'd go the next morning and see the daylight, and there were these. His eyes, an extraordinary collection of emotions passed before you. He, he was a, and he, I don't know if he, he knew what he was doing, but he was. And, and there are movie, there were in the old days, movie actors and movie directors who worked exclusively and specially in that medium without any relation to what we know as the theatre. Yes, and really,
3: certainly, was one of those. I don't think he ever read uh, Wuthering Heights, either. <laughs> and yet, he, he understood better than anybody. Once he got the kind of general narrative, and it, it sounds like I'm making fun of him, but I'm really not. Uh, he, he understood better than anybody what it was about him, and, and, and how to do it and how to get it. So, but well, he makes more than that. He made him over and over again. He showed what wonderful films. I think
1: that, Betty Davis said she loved working with him and then when they did Little Foxes they disagreed on how to do it and it was very difficult for her which I'm only saying to get to a more general question do you sometimes work with a director you really like and you really don't agree on how something should go and what do you do?
3: Well, I I would trust him or her and and you do it because they asked you to or you do two versions, that's Mm not unheard of on the screen and both are printed and then the, the, the best one is chosen and you can't do that in the theater you can't
1: you know? yes. <laughs> and you'll see you could ways. ask the audience to stay and see it again or something. Well, you could do that yes, yes.
2: no but you were talking about, uh, an interesting point which is to what extent does the actor have to agree yes with the director uh, not on a simple matter of interpretation but on the whole conception for God, <laughs> yeah. and uh, yeah. it's, it's nice when they do. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible and,
1: when they uh, do Uh
2: I suppose you can. An actor can achieve perfectly good results uh, after a while with uh, doing something that they don't essentially uh, understand or agree with. I, mean, I I think it's the director's job to convince the actor at least to reach a compromise there, but it, uh, it doesn't always happen.
1: You would say something about uh, mostly film directors. Do you find that there's a difference in working with a film director or an a stage director, or a difference in what you want
2: from them? And Geraldine could tell you more about that, but she's a woman. The film director is the only yeah. audience
3: that you're ever really going to have or be able to respond to. So Film director means tremendous amount to, to film actors. I mean, it means everything. His or her response is the only response they'll ever know about. And his or her warmth and energy and so forth coming from the director is the only warmth and energy they're going to get. The camera is only machine, you know? Can't do much for you. Uh, although the actress that John was speaking about, the super moody actors did seem to have a relationship
2: with the, with the machines. machine. It's extraordinary experience. Gary
4: Cooper was another. Yeah, an electric relationship with the camera. You really couldn't see anything happening with, with Gary Cooper, but then the rushes. was also well said that the, the camera fell in love with certain faces, certain yes. heads. And he said that, very yes. firmly. Yes. And one almost feels that what really happens is the other way around. There are certain people who feel at home actually with a camera in itself. Yes, they do. You know, that they, 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 they respond to that, and possibly, probably, as much to the to the lighting cameras as well. There are certain people
3: who do that to a television camera. Those, those, those people who speak directly, like, well, you think of those great solo performers and narrators and, and speakers in Norway. You can't believe that they're staring at the machine, can you?
2: Up. Well, it's much easier, I think, for an actor to, to uh, equate the, the camera in a television setup than it is in, in, in movies. I think you, and you also know, I think we've learned, that w- when you're acting or speaking to a camera, you are in fact working for an audience closer. Is that was not always true in movies. Also, you were asked uh, in not all directors, but many directors, uh, uh, every time they shot a scene, they would shoot it in, uh, in, in long shot, and then they'd shoot it in close uh, shot, and uh, they were not always the same performances that were required in a medium shot, or long shot, or even a shoulder shot. But with a television camera, uh, you, I think anybody who has any experience of it knows, uh, I mean, they can transfer themselves into that living room and see themselves being received by the two or three spectators in that living room. So that I think it's much easier to make the contact with the audience, in te- and with the television camera and, and the television contact, than it is in movies.
3: Yes. Yes, it isn't more
2: about them the relationship. It's so subtle, I mean, you're, you're talking right at them. And you know you're talking at them, and that's what you're expected to do.
1: I remember in uh, Tom Jones, when Albert turned her camera and said line, how powerful it was.
2: Yes, that was again, I mean, that was the, the director knew how powerful it was going to be, just as in, uh, in Great Expectations, in that famous uh, Sudden Cut. The little boy in the end. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the director's job, and that's the kind of thing that a movie director can do for you as an actor. It's no, uh... well, I mean, to give you simply an an example, when I did the paper chase, I'd never acted in my life anywhere. And uh, I was expected to perform this this disagreeable old man. And uh, between the the cameraman and the director, they, in fact, orchestrated my performance. They they set it up so that throughout the first third of that movie, uh, I was always in huge close-up, and the kids were always on long tracks. So it was not surprising that I dominated them. <laughs> it was done for me. Uh, uh, and that sort of thing, uh, we're talking we have gotten away from the art of acting we're talking about purely mechanical uh, things that a director can do to or for an actor in in television and and movies but uh, it's very different from the art of acting and directing it's something purely mechanical yes
3: but you can do things too uh, in the theater to give a person uh, an air of command Mm -hmm. and so on
2: John, you're very good at that. What kind, of, what kind of thing? Oh, I, well, the, the obvious, the mechanical things there too. There the, the placements on mm. the stage, yes. the relation of the other actors to the person whom you wish to bring out at that moment. Uh, but uh, it's not uh, quite as uh, mechanically controllable as it is in the theatre.
1: The, the audience, I can move, I mean, you, you can direct it, but it can move if it wants to. Um, you, you you worked a lot as a producer, could I ask you, as a producer, what makes a good director? Um, coming in on time?
2: Uh, no, no. Uh, uh, well, uh, again, uh, you have to go face the hope of the story. I mean, today there's no such thing as a producer. so. The question is an idle question. Uh, there was a time... For better or for worse, there was a time when the, the producer in motion pictures was uh, an important creative element. Uh, in fact, he chose the property in the first place. He chose the, the writer. He chose the director. He cast the picture... There's probably some interference from the studio, but I'm assuming that he was able to exert his authority. And he finally had a lot to do with the the editing. So at that point, your relationship with the director is a a very special one and a a delicate one. But um, in other producer I always had enormous uh, respect and and fear of not fear, but uh, uh, consideration for the uh, necessity to leave the director completely free while working within the structure that I had hoped to achieve. And when you worked, uh, for instance, when I worked with John Mankiewicz on Julius Caesar, um, we had complete and perfect time. We edited the script together, we talked about the script together we cast the script together and on the set of course he, he, was, he was completely in, in charge without any interference so then he, he cut the picture together um, when you work with somebody like Minnelli uh, it didn't always work as smoothly as that because he was a very emotional very not neurotic but very uh, uh, high tension director and he uh, you, you let him do just whatever he wanted uh, uh, in those elements which in which you knew that he was enormously skillful and knew what he was doing. So, uh, it, it, there was no such thing as a, as a standard uh, relationship between a producer and a director. It varied from picture to picture and from personality to personality.
1: You've worked a lot with Arthur, who I... Oh, (laughs) Um, Something that I'm running across, and it's a very practical uh, problem for me, is is more and more film and television actors are sometimes put in starring or major roles on stage for a dinner theater or regional theater production what are some suggestions (laughs) if you have any comments on helping them maintain the energy and so forth of the evening going from their experience
2: to as a director or a fellow actor as a director
1: (laughs) uh, how can I help what can I do to perhaps help help them
2: you're talking about an unhappy situation to begin with Uh, (laughs) No, I mean, it it might turn out, uh, and you wouldn't be asking the question, it might turn out that uh, he or she can adapt very easily to the requirements of the dinner theater. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) Um, it may be that um, you have a hopeless task. Is there
1: something through the rehearsal process that you can perhaps building somewhere. I'm mm-hmm. um, finding things for them to do rather
2: than things for them to think about. <laughs> <laughs> and that that, that that takes up, that, that stops them from being so nervous. But is there a That's great deal of that going on? Mm-hmm. I would have thought there was less and less of that.
1: Well, uh, I do a lot of guest directing in the regional the theaters, and the local audiences are television oriented, so the producers want to get here. A television star of some some note, and many of them, uh, if it's an older role, perhaps at one time were on the stage, but they've been years away from from. It. But more than likely, it's young, younger uh, stars now or leading
2: people from TV. It's I do role. I would have thought most of the young leading people in TV had fairly recent theatrical experience. No.
1: Well, when you, when you get them in the range where they would be in the leads of uh, picnic or bus stop... on they'd the early uh, 20 and, 20 Yes, 20 some 20. of those. And, uh, and they would be the name draw for the community because yeah. they have seen them on a soap or something like that. But they don't have the, the, the stage experience. Yes. Uh, perhaps if you work with
3: them by themselves quite a lot, mm-hmm. then uh, that also might help you
2: uh, yeah, well, one of the problems, Jim, I think with those people is that they don't know how to rehearse. So you yeah. actually can knock yourself out rehearsing for hours, and they do not necessarily have never learned how to benefit from those rehearsals. And that, as says. Don't maybe your main outside. And no, they
1: prepare don't.
3: Prepare. So you
2: have to prepare with them. Mm-hmm. You have to help them at the helm also. Mm-hmm.
3: But that would be the most rewarding thing that you can do
1: in my opinion. I enjoy working with them but it's it's a risk it's sometimes very successful yes mm-hmm. sometimes not <laughs> <laughs> any other questions sir?
4: what, what about you opposite? you got a stage actor and you have been in the film and um, you have a director who's looking at stage actors
2: I don't admit that's a problem. Uh, I've I've never believed it. At Juilliard, uh, for years people said, well, you're going to give them, aren't you being unfair to them? You're not going to give them lessons on how to act for a camera. And I always believe that any actor who learns his business and is able to project to either a small audience or big audience, it's just a mechanical difference. Can also project your camera. Uh, I don't think there is such a thing as acting. I mean, I think it may take a few days or if somebody is not very driving, it may take a little longer than that, but I think the adjustment to the camera for an actor who knows his business is absolutely automatic. Don't you, Jeremy? I don't think there's anything special about acting either. I mean... And if they're in their right mind, they know that they don't howl as though they were working in a 1500 seat theater when they've got the camera three feet away from them. But that's so easy to learn. I, I don't think that's a problem. A lot of film directors don't think way. A lot of today's film directors don't think. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't know. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> 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 um. Yeah,
7: yeah. It's yes. um, some as as an actor or as a director. Some anecdotes about when you were creating a role, or when you had an actor creating a role, and you could not get from where you were to where you wanted. To. Be, and some points where you know, you know some directors who are very really helpful in working with you along those lines, of the directors as opposed to directors who just sat there and wait for you to come up with any Gerardy. specific directors or specific.
2: Geraldine is an actress. Well, to answer
3: that um, yes, uh, there, there are there are quite a few directors who just wait to come up. With a great many of them are in the media where it's not really their fault so much because they're not given enough time to work on scenes. They just just set it up and then you do whatever is done in that setup, and then you set it up and do it every time and They set really, they really don't have time to be helpful. But I suppose there are some directors in the theatre who are not able to be helpful and um, I've certainly worked with some of them in my life but they're not people. The people have long gone and they weren't there any great reputations, so their names really wouldn't mean anything about it. Uh,
2: I think it's partly also the responsibility consciously or unconsciously and the part of the actor to realize what sort of director he's, he's working with. I mean, uh, I know when the Juilliard kids, when Chulé came to direct at Juilliard, it was a great honor for everybody and uh, everybody's very excited about it. And then after about a week, they all came deep distressed because everything they'd learned seemed to be negated. They said, well, he tells us what to where to move, what to do, and uh, what's happening at that moment, and uh, he leaves nothing to us. Uh, another ten days went by, and they came around again. They said, well, now we finally understood. He was simply giving us certain structural things to help us. And from then on, he left us completely alone to develop whatever we wanted. And even if we wanted to change some of the business, uh, it didn't bother him. But he he was simply, he was dealing, his experience was, with uh, highly professional uh, uh, actors who were accustomed to working together. And so it didn't bother them, to be told, uh their pride was not hurt and they were not uh, offended when certain specific moves and emotions were indicated to them because they knew they would know they would experience, that this was merely the first stage and he would then allow them to use the structure to develop whatever they wanted uh, John another director
3: who directed that way of great renown was of, of Max Reinhardt and he did exactly what John described. He directed and choreographed you down the last gesture for the first week. Incidentally he required that everybody knew every line in the play for the first reading. The first reading. Well, he couldn't get an American company to do that. It was so far away from training it, most of us had. So we just settled for not allowing any pauses for the first reading because he he already had in his mind exactly what it was going to sound like, look like <laughs> right, and feel like. And then, as John described by he was truly, he also, once it was in a certain state, he, he was thrilled when changes were made by the actors and when new things were made, because he loved actors and he got extraordinary performances from them. And uh, in, in that respect, I remember a very interesting thing he said about life pass on. The play was a play by Erwin Shaw called The Sons and Soldiers and it had an amazing cast of Gregory Peck and Stella Adler and Carl Morgan and the whole group of the people. And one day during some kind of a break some of the young American um, men were saying that they would they expect to have trouble with Shakespeare because they said well we belong in an egalitarian society we don't really know how kings and kings behave. We don't have any feeling about what that would be like. And he said, yes, but you do. If you will cast your mind back to what you were like before you were seven, you then behave exactly like the king.
5: (laughs) (laughs) And and he stood like a hero
3: or a hero. And he said, if you want to know how an emperor behaves, watch a baby in a baby carriage. A baby in a baby carriage behaves like an emperor or an empress. They don't even bother to uh, uh, put out their hand almost to be given It's all based, he said, on the fact that kings and queens are given everything. And that's why they stand back. That's why they don't lean forward. That's why they don't beseech. They just stand there and maybe put out their hand. And emperors, according to him, don't even lower their head. If you put something in the hand, they just lower their eyelashes. (laughs)
2: never forgotten that. I think it's, it's a profoundly organic truth, and I don't think anybody in that company has ever played that Geraldine was talking about the business of learning lines. Uh, there's a very, this is a certain story, you've heard it, haven't you? um, uh, At the Moscow Art Theatre, they used to rehearse plays for a long time, as they do in any oh. record theatre to, to this day in Europe. Uh, there it's longer than usual and so uh, Stanislavski was very very uh, concerned that the actors not learn their lines and if an actor at the end of four months gave evidence of knowing his lines (laughs) Stanislavski was known to recast him because he drove him mad (laughs) now at the end of six, seven, eight, nine months uh, he suddenly announced one day, he said, all right, now we move to the next phase and in the next week I want everybody to learn their lines. And uh, this created a problem because these actors have been pretending not to know their lines <laughs> for months. And there's a famous story about some, one of the great Russian actors, I forget which one it was, and uh, he had gotten so much into the habit of pretending he didn't know his lines that he had, but he wasn't able to change that. And so after about ten days, they were rehearsing, and when he pretended to be groping for a line. And Stanislavski became very haughty and said, I'm amazed, an actor of your stature experience, I assumed that you would do what I asked you to, learn your lines, and now I find it. Too. And at that, the actor blew up. He had a big knob-terry stick in his hand, and he said, now, he said, I've been wanting to kill you. But, <laughs> but he said, now, that's it, you're getting it. And he read and flew at it. Reinhardt was apparently, uh, I mean, Stanislavski, for all his size, was a very cowardly man. And he leapt over the footlights and ran up the aisle towards the men's room, pursued by this man <laughs> and locked himself in the men's room, and the man came banging the door and saying, I'm gonna kill you, I'm gonna kill you. So there are dangers in <laughs> and, uh, the question of learning your line. Yes. Someone asked about Arvin. Oh yes, you asked about Arvin, oh, yes, someone asked you and I thought there was um
4: intriguing. Arvin Brown,
5: the
4: director of the Longa Theatre yeah.
3: and of um, many plays here in New York. But all uh, he is extremely popular director. He has a much other distinction, the distinction of never giving anybody a negative direction. In other words, he does not tell you what not to do. He only tells you what to do. And it's it's very logical because it's not possible to perform a non-action, it really isn't so he also has a deep and warm regard for this which is very uh, much felt by everybody. And he's much loved and a very gifted man. I love working with him. I've worked with him several times, many times. <clears throat> People take chances with him. They give performances with him but they very often don't with anybody else because he has so much confidence in their powers to do that. That was another thing about Max Reinhardt. He felt actors could do anything. I remember he said to me once, grow a little taller than you say that
5: guy.
6: <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, you can. If you don't, so I'll have to put you on some kind of little box.
5: <laughs> Would you comment, please, on um, an observation that I've had in the theater, that there are many young directors today and middle-aged directors who very much influenced by what they understand as the stumms being to the theater, come to rehearsal without any preparation whatsoever, and then seem to suggest that the actors that this is delivered or the work that comes from them. But well, what it comes down to, it seems to me, is that they no longer do their homework. And they expect everything to be done by the actor. Many times,
2: uh, the director begins and says, just move anywhere you want to. And then, of course, most the rest of actor gets sent to stage whether the focus should be there or not. And you can't ever get it out of there. That's just a lazy director. Yes. Yeah. It has nothing to do with Stanislavski or the <laughs> method or anything. Because... Uh, I know directors, many good directors, uh, who pretend or do not assert the fact that they've prepared and uh, allow them to give you the feeling that they're open, but uh, if they're any good, they've prepared very carefully.
1: I think Mike Nichols said once, that one of the hard things about directing is when to say what. Yes. yes. It's truly a gift, isn't it, have it? create that atmosphere of time in a rehearsal. Creativity like Arvin Kent and a man named do
4: Man. You can't wait to get to rehearsal. How's oh, this It's one of the prime things I think an actor wants from a director. When you
2: arrive at rehearsal that you can't wait to get to I, I absolutely it's agree.
3: But well, it, it is coming, springing out of affection for
4: people. And respect. It's a little rare, but that, hmm. it's coming
3: from that. Yes.
4: Don't don't you think that the affection uh, is very much connected with the affection for the the play for the playwright the text um. I mean there there seem to be two kinds those who seem to see what the writer has envisioned or has a feeling for the writer's vision and attempts to release that Mm -hmm. vision the writer's vision and other directors who seem to find a way of sharing that vision that is in a sense the those who direct the, the actual play of the text and those who attempt to find a new way in which they are as it were deeply involved with the project which is not necessarily bad I mean Peter Brook or Sir on one side and Arvin Brown and, and, and uh, Trevor Nunn on the other or something like that there are two different ways and one is a, a playmaker which may well enhance a good text and damage a bad text and damage a a good one. Yes, but <laughs> does seem that it's, it's, the play is the thing, and that preparation or that f- affection, love for the play, some other spreads into into those actors who will perform parts or segments of the play. And I think Arvin has this tremendous feeling for the life in the background, as yeah. in the other Lawrence play that, that you were mm, in, yes. in in the in the um, oh,
3: the widowing of Mrs. starlight.
4: Watching the Harrod, in which he, he made a a kitchen and a, and, a, and a world
2: for you within yeah. which to act being yeah, the designer exactly. yeah. I think uh, you would be missing an opportunity uh, if we didn't get Geraldine to talk to you uh, on something subject in which she is uniquely uh, talk, which is that having been an actress having over many years learned her business as an actor uh, now, so suddenly, she finds herself working with a playwright, and the next thing you know, she has to direct mm-hmm. some very solid gentlemen with a great deal of experience, one of them at least of enormous experience, and uh, how did you set about that? I think it's it's, it's not very common, and I think you are particularly <clears throat> well to talk about this. Are you, are you talking
3: a Mass Appeal?
2: Yes. Yes. Well, that happened to be the first one.
3: Yes. Well, in in that case, that was the the first one, although I'd had some experience assisting a director in the Speak Theatre movement. But the day came when the Manhattan Theatre Club I was faced with with two actors, Marlon S.A. and Eric Roberts, and had to say something to them. (laughs) (laughs) And I took consolation in the fact that the very first times I'd met Orson Welles and John Housing, I'd met them. And they were producing and directing Heartbreak House. And that also had opened the rehearsal of Heartbreak House when we were all sitting around the table by saying, I have no idea what this play is about or what any of us are going to do. So I remembered that and that
5: teared
3: me up. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I say that to them, I, I tried to pretend I didn't know. <laughs> I just remembered for myself that he said that. But, there came a time when I came and all thing happened. The two characters, they were kind of jammed up on one side of the stage, and I simply couldn't get them to the other. There seemed to be no reason for either of them ever to move, ever. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I did the only thing that, that, that I could. I said, I don't know what to do. I, I said to Michael and town now, help me now, I really don't know what to do. I want one of you over on the other side of the stage, and I want to be loved." Or so help and they were great. And they from then on, rehearsals went awfully well because I suppose that vulnerability on my part put them at their ease and they became extra creative and, and wonderful in their roles. And then little by little, I did actually learn how to get people out of jams that I'd made for them <laughs> <laughs> and how to help them. And uh, so I'm, I'm not so nervous anymore, but I don't know if I could ever not go into a first rehearsal without students rather nervous and have to what's going on. I don't know if anybody mm-hmm. How did you learn the technical side of things like you wanted to apply? Oh I, uh, yes, I didn't know anything about that at all, but just, just by, by going to all the meetings that I could, even meetings that I personally wasn't going to be involved with about things that had nothing to do with me, I went to all of them to try and find out, and little by little again I found out what I could have and what I couldn't have, what I could do and what, what I couldn't do,
7: and the times things had to be ready by and so forth. Mm-hmm. Do you as a director have an overall view or
4: David or the
3: you wanted the production to happen?
4: Yes, I do. I I, I do. Does this come from paintings
3: or research? No, it it comes, uh, in my case, it comes from a kind of uh, instinct of what I want to see and what I want to do and
1: what what I want to have done. And you know it when you see it.
3: Now I know in advance, but I don't, can't always put it into words right away. I work towards it, even though the kind of sights and sounds that I have in my mind are not absolutely clear right at the beginning. They become clearer and clearer. what like I do want. Is the technical aspects, the uh,
4: frightening Well, <coughs> in
3: one way they were rather good, because I asked for things which, which uh, Ordinarily you're not supposed to be able to do the flights and so on, but you really can, and having asked them, and not knowing that they couldn't be done, I got them. I (laughs) got them. I mean, it's a great deal it can be done, more than we often do. I I, I don't like, uh, I don't like not being able to see plays. I mean, I mean that literally physically. I don't like plays to be so darkly lit and somberly that mm. I can't see what's happening up there. But I can't see the face properly. Mm. I, I find that very disturbing and uh, I find it very exhausting, the effort of trying to see, mm. because certainly the audience wants to be involved. They want that intensity. And if, if you can't see, you stopping that from
4: happening in a very basic way you have not worked with Tyrone Guthrie?
3: No, but I've seen some really? of his work. With him. Yeah. Right. Well, that's the sort of thing you know, that, that, uh, that John Austin did so
2: splendidly. Mm. And there was wonderful mise-en-scene. Well, really well Guthrie was sort of a legendary character and the world of uh, the actors are divided into those who worshipped him and those who couldn't stand working. him. Uh, he was a very eccentric man in the sense that he he was in the very unpredictable in his, in his reactions and in his emotions. And sometimes he was brilliantly prepared and other times he wasn't. I never worked with him. Work with
1: him. What about working with Orson Wells? Well... much <laughs> say.
2: so many books about him that I, d- I daren't open my mouth. I'll be quoted. But... Uh, well, it, it was an absolutely extraordinary experience. Uh, uh, Heartbreak House was so special because it was, a, up to a point, a realistic play. Uh, and Austin was... Uh, I, I think he, he... I don't know how it was. In general, I think he left people alone more in that play than he did in most of his productions. No? Yeah, uh, he, he, had, he had ways of,
3: of stating things that had a great deal of symbolism. I remember when uh, he directed King Lear which he also played as a I was in that playing one of the sisters, Goneril. And after King Lear tears up the map and caught court leaves the stage, also awesome divided by the idea that the two sisters, the two evil sisters, vegan and Bonnerall, should should come from stage right and stage left and that the good sister Cordelia would come up the middle and kind of bisect them which was an awfully interesting idea and it would have meant a lot to the audience The audience didn't really know who they were then but they couldn't have helped responding to that kind of the picture um, and, but but, but uh, the actress who's playing Cordelia she didn't she didn't want to do that because it, she couldn't feel it belonged to her own <laughs> characterization quite. and so it wasn't that it was a great pity this, the scene that followed that which carried out another um, concept of Orson's, which was that if you create a vacuum politically, the person who steps into the vacuum is the spill, the crook. Is the what? The spill, I'm quoting here, S-P-I-D, you know, the crook. Mm. And so after the sisters had finished, he did have on the stage a sense of total silence, emptiness, non-action. John Doom. and then into that walked, uh, one of the interesting young actors was playing Edmund the Bastard and it, the audience was, it was as if they hit in the mid they actually had no idea why all that happened was uh, a person had walked on the stage so he was always wonderful at doing things like that
2: I think that's very true I think a lot of awesome direction uh, came from ideas of that sort he yes. was very very visual director very interesting so he was a painter yes. uh, training well, himself well, do you think that's what it is I, I tend to have visual ideas of what I
3: want to see and I start
2: out as a painter do you think this is amazing mm-hmm. yes well I Austin's direction was incredibly certainly in those early days when we the great with Beck and uh, Foster's it was enormously rich and there was uh, he worked harder than any director I've ever known and there were all kinds of obvious uh, uh, flaws of late for rehearsal and not showing up all but when he worked when he was act- actually in the process of rehearsing I think mean, he worked twice as hard as anybody I've ever worked with and the the, the brain was functioning at an enormous intensity and all in Years before I got there, and yet suddenly it was this enormous treasure trove full of all kinds of things vulgarities, highly comic notions, uh, beautiful things, absurd things. But again, the richness, I think, was the great uh, uh, characteristic of Orson's direction. And that's true of uh, Citizen Kane, and it's true of uh, of, of, of the whole argument about the who wrote game is an absurdity it's a disgusting argument of which everybody is, is guilty to be but the fact is that what is wonderful about that picture is again the richness the visual richness the emotional richness uh, the, uh, simply the use of time uh, and these were all Orson's qualities as a director in
1: relationship to uh, that's very simple, if we give an actor symbolic or so-called arbitrary yeah. movement from both the actor and the director's point of view how can we help the actor let it come out of character and all, all that? Because uh. we, we, we see what we want to achieve and yet they have to make it alive. Well, some are very,
3: very uh, imaginative actors like mm-hmm. If you if you tell them what you want to achieve? They're they concerned about helping you do that. That's helpful, mm-hmm. cool. and I understand looking at it from that
5: from
3: the other view too. I, I this is a question that I'm very interested in too because I I've come from a great i you know dancer, yes. pure human, dance, and
5: I work with in the department especially with oh avant garde collaborations now. It's a bad term, mm-hmm. but yeah, surprises. <laughs> um, and I do. I mean, I'm not always working with my whole shed. And it's it's not that it, you know, turns into a scene necessarily, but I don't against the problem of an actor saying... They're saying speech that's highly stylized and not natural, but they'll use the defense by saying, do this, you know, go after this or that in movement. They will say to me, but that isn't natural. And from my background, I think, well, what you're saying isn't natural either, but I find actors very willing to say complicated things, but they won't go after movement. I mean, can, can you just, it's not, you know, it's different in every instance, but I would like to talk about that a little more because I find it a very, a big block as a director, working with actors as opposed to people who have been trained as dancers. Because well, dancers understand Yes, yes they do.
2: Surely uh, one of the uh, requirements uh, of what, of, of a of today's well-trained actor is to face that very problem. I mean, they have, they've been like it. Through a, through proper kind of training, uh, they have done act, they've done dances, they've done movement, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't bother them. I mean, I don't know if that's not natural, it's an idiotic remark on any level, you know, um, what the hell is natural, um, but um, that should be part of their training. You shouldn't necessarily have to well, start from scratch and teach them that. Except I, I have, I mean, in, I
5: know in many of the cases that I'm thinking these people are quite good but they do say that to
2: mm. me, it is not natural. I mean, so what, what are, is the response Are, are they state? aware of the kind of play that they're in? Yeah, I mean, they Have are. you made that yeah. clear to them?
5: Sure, because they have to, I mean...
2: A certain kind of plays to say that's unnatural is it? absurd. That's what I think. But I mean, <laughs> now I'm saying, like, so what... I
6: mean, it, it is a problem
5: to me because I don't, I mean, it isn't, I can't just can't just get like in the case of Orson Welles that's what made me
2: think But have you made them understand the kind of play that you think you are directing? Oh they have to they
5: know it from the beginning because it's a collaboration
2: with the writer so they can text them together but then so. Does the writer want them to be natural?
5: No mm-hmm. I mean so it, you're saying go back to the very basis of that a- I Absolutely I
2: don't. I don't think you can cure that superficially I think this is a, a concept and I think it's up to you to make sure that your class understands that, yeah. or they shouldn't be in that particular product. Yeah,
5: that it is up to me. I mean, to try and get to the get the problem. I am mean, going after
2: it because it is a problem. You know, the yeah. I've, I've had that question a few times, and
7: occasionally the question doesn't really the questionnaire doesn't really mean natural. Often, what they're having a problem with is the logic of what they're doing. And uh, if you can attack that and make that clearer, show where the logic of it makes sense. clear up the logic of it, I think it becomes natural. It becomes natural universal. They may mean comfortable too. <laughs> comfortable and safe. Mm-hmm. They may mean they're not comfortable. they want to be safe. They
5: want to do what they're used to doing when they not going at all.
7: I might my, my venture as a director, you know, you look at their resume, see what training they do have. If they're young, they may have a very narrow range of training. You may have to look back, see what they can do, and reorient what you want in terms of what their skills are. No, sometimes that, it's that the, isn't a problem
5: with I mean, these are people who are very very things they have to get through. You know, I mean they have to be fast to do it on a certain sense, but they like separate the skills. there's I mean, a separation of the skill in a but that's, that's my problem. Do you find a change in actors who uh, are
1: trained now in close to those who were trained 30 or 40 years ago? For instance, working with Milo, little I'm Was it hard arriving at a
3: common vocabulary? With him? With the two of you. Oh, with the two of you. No, they were were both very well trained in in quite different ways. Mine had been trained in in about every way there is. starting started from Grigio Del Argo and pantomime and singing and uh, (laughs) uh, classical theatre and melodrama. I don't know there was any kind of theatre that not experienced in. And Eric Roberts had been... I don't know whether you'd classify as a Stasdard Street actor, but his act, uh, performing had that kind of dimension. And uh, it seemed that he worked on it on a very deep level rather than that way. Very
4: talented. I saw Milo play one of the Wicked Sisters in yeah. well, Cinderella with, with Michael <laughs> McLemore playing That's the French one. Yes, oh. <laughs> so he did
3: everything. Including camp
1: dance. When I was at school, you, you were not allowed to give a line reading I don't know why, but when I want to transfer anything not to give alignment, does it value you if somebody gives you a line? I, no. I think
3: it's a way to say what it is. It's a, it's a way of communicating an idea. and Sometimes the idea can't be communicated that way from the director to the actor. Sometimes it can. There's no reason to take Um Also, some directors like to act the roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jose Quintero is one of a director of the building. he's a magnificent actor. And you can gain a great deal of knowledge of what he wants by seeing him do it. The only problem is, though, to one's ego, because he, he plays it much, much better than one's ego. <laughs> 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 he, he, he has extreme access to all his emotions, and emotions. But, uh, but none, none, of, none of that uh, offends me of how I was about it. And so I uh, am very distressed if anybody else was directing was offended
4: feeling put down by any choice—it's all an attempt to communicate uh, an idea from one person to another. I mean, that's what's leading the action. Did you? I mean, because Max Reinhardt—I mean, in a way, when none, none of the people in this room would be here in the 19th century, uh, it's a 20th-century uh, arising life. Yes. And, and so Reinhardt and and uh, and um, Edward Gordon Craig. And People like that were really the forerunners of our profession. I mean, they were inventing the profession. And whether you, you, were, either of you were aware of that, or the, or whether actors aware? aware. well, the actors, I mean, I knew Sir John Martin Harvey's son, yes, Michael, and uh, he talked about his father and you know that the old stage manager who would say about the young actor working with Irving. You know, just give him the lines and stay out of the light. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> there are so many versions of
2: that. <laughs> Phil Merivale told me that, that when he, he was working for Fred Terry, yeah. a very young man, he was um, understudying Horatio. Mm-hmm. And uh, one night Horatio got sick and so in a panic, he, uh, mm-hmm. Phil Merivale was called on to play Horatio and he went up to the great man and said, Gov. You call it governor. 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 He said, Governor, I, you know I suppose I'm playing Horatio tonight. Have you any particular recommendations or anything you want to tell me? He said, no, no, my boy. He stay six feet away and do your damage. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but I, that same kind of lie is the advice to the young actor. He eyes and teeth, laddie. Eyes and teeth. And in a way, it's not so bad. You know I mean? In a way, that acting, that vivid acting, yes. uh, is often missing, <laughs> the understated acting. I've never heard of eyes. Eyes of that. Maddie. I'd like to ask you, when you did the street people, and when you did
5: appear in it in
3: Brooklyn, particularly at the Black Hamlet, which uh, was yes.
6: fabulous, uh, what was it like working with that question perhaps one
3: thing at all? Well, I, I, I didn't direct the, the back up. Um, and then answer the question, what was it like in the, uh, what I did direct at one of the productions of, of Every Man in Rose. They, they were extremely uh, responsive the actors they had. They were awfully good actors. Some of them had not had, had all that experience, but they were extremely talented. Uh, you have to develop your own vocabulary. That's really what Yes. Well, uh, it, it, it varied. Now, some of them responded to directions from a choreographer better than to any other directions that they've got. And some of them responded better to... to uh, to uh, be given a kind of subtext for the Shakespearean line. I, I know when I made the, 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 what was supposed to be happening was a, a different subtext for, for um, Hamlet. It was supposed to take place in one of those new third world countries which had suddenly become oil rich, And Hamlet and they had been educated here in the United States, and then on the death of the king they'd gone back to the little kingdom and their helmet had found the about the married outcomes and so forth and covered all this and it worked, worked terribly well because you we understood for the first time why for example Ophelia was so much in thought to her father because in those countries that's the situation exists now this was, was a concept that I borrowed again from John and Orson and they did um, Julius Caesar which was one of the greatest productions I've ever seen of anything In 1937, 8, they chose Mussolini and fascist Italy as the the mise scene when this all happened. And I've never seen a Shakespearean production such an effect on the audience. The audience responded to it as if it was the most immediate kind of drama. And at the end, when you say that they, we all talk about standing ovations, but when you say that. It was like a great way that came in the, and the whole house stood up like that, as if they'd been choreographed, I it chore, so, so everything is natural. They choreographed themselves <laughs> quite naturally, which is what you mean if you want the actors to do.
1: Um,
3: and it was so splendid, too, the way that play was edited, that, that the daring and courage was, which also the awesome John decided that what the audience was not interested in in that play should not be in that play on any night when the audience saw it. The you know, the whole ending which is usually protracted. and splendid. Did you have any very strong feelings about it yourself? Did mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that you had... The the, part
2: well, of self,
3: a production of
2: extraordinary... You know. No, 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 the first three... Well, it has so often happened with Austin's awesome shows. The first three previews were detached, partly because the sounds went wrong, but also it just didn't work. Uh, when you have as highly charged and as rich, and I use the word again, a production, as Orson's work, um, it takes a little t- it takes a little time for all those elements to, um, to coalesce. And uh, sometimes, before they coalesce, it appears to be uh, a terrible mess. And there were times when it never closed, for one reason or another. But even when it did, it was true you to See the first three or four uh, previews were a disaster. And then, at one matinee, uh, a man whom I just saw in London, George with, uh, who who is a uh, Cassandra malicious delicious, and awful man. But his voice was heard all over the theatre. Because you could hear, the stage was kind of open underneath. You could hear him. And he said, I hate to be a Cassandra, but you know we're all going to be leaving town in disgrace two days from now. <laughs> <laughs> and on that particular afternoon, suddenly it caught fire. But all of you know, you've yes. been in theatre. There's always one moment when suddenly it fuses. Uh, it sometimes it happens the very first few but it's rare and sometimes it doesn't happen until after you've opened it but on this particular afternoon it suddenly you, to answer your question it was suddenly evident that we had an extraordinary uh, production but it had not been evident until that moment what do you do in the time before you know that you suffer you suffer, <laughs> you suffer and worry and hope the sheriff doesn't you <laughs> arrived before the fusion happened. <laughs> in, uh, in
4: the 50s, Ilya Kazan made a tremendous impact on theater as a director, so much so that you could say this is an Ilya Kazan production. If you can tell that. Did either of you
2: work with him? I knew him very well because I worked with the group theater and I, I, I watched him work. Uh, I watched him work all the way back to where he left it. Uh, but, um, By the 50s, it
6: was a Julia Kazan production.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, that, was a, a, that was not just something he blew through the nose. I mean, that was very careful preparation also. For instance, Streetcar. I happen to have read the original script of Streetcar and uh, the, the script that they were in production with. And, uh, uh, again, let's not get into this absurd business of who wrote who, but I mean the fact is that by uh, identifying with Kowalski Gadge changed the whole coloring of that play because uh, Hennessy's sympathies were of course all with her, and uh, it was still very impressive and quite wonderful, but uh, it it was a little soft, a little not Maudlin, but I mean, the, the moment that Kowalski became a figure, a sympathetic figure, became a figure that you identified with, the whole play came to life. And that was the kind of thing that Gadge, I and mean, also he worked wonderfully well with actors, yeah. but uh, it was more than just working well with actors. I mean, he had certain concepts. I don't know anything about the development of the sweet bird of youth, but I'm sure that Gadge... Affected that
6: it was always a very virile redu- a stamp on
4: it, a very physical thing. That's right. That's right. Now that very same play, uh, Harold Clurman directed a different interpretation of it from the books i uh, read. Right. The Chicago production of *Streetcar*, which Blanche was more focused upon, than the audience's identification was
2: with. Uh, is that just? A I, I didn't. Character? I didn't see it. Uh, I would. I would have thought that Harold. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure, and he did direct it again somewhere in Japan or somewhere. But I mean, I'm sure that Harold would do it differently. But I, but I think what happens usually is that a play acquires an identity on that famous night where the fusion takes place, and then, of course, through the success of the play, and um, that is the identity that stays with it. I mean, for example, we just did. Cradle Will Rock in London, and the fact is that that play, as everybody knows, had a full orchestra, full scenery, all kinds of production values. Because of a pure accident, uh, it was done without scenery with the actors on ad-libbing something in the audience. That is the nature of that play. It's been tried with orchestra, We tried with scenery, and it doesn't work, it's simply the identity of that play has been established. And so no matter how and streetcar gets done all over the world and in Sweden and in Germany and ever and I'm sure many different versions of it, but the the heart of that play was set in the production that Gadge directed for Tennessee and Irene mean, Silvia. Uh, uh, to that degree a director uh, has an enormous influence on the identity of a what?
1: If the playwright is alive, uh, the director does he collaborate also with the playwright? Uh, he,
2: he should. He, he should. It's but very, very unfortunate. It it's very didn't unfortunate, didn't it. unfortunate when they don't.
3: Yes, it is very unfortunate when the playwright and the director And puts the, the, the play in very dangerous position. But let go back to Gaddis for a moment. I heard him say not so long ago that. As far as direction is concerned, the subtext is all in the book Thank you. Mm-hmm. And you think of what John's just said about Stanley Kowalski. He changed the subtext of that play and it was all.
2: Talking of subtext, uh, it's an interesting story. When we were doing Julius Caesar, uh, I take the full credit for having thought of Br- uh, Brando to play it's Anthony. Wonderful I think. <coughs> Worked very well but uh, when Brando came out well of everybody thought we were all mad and I was mad and uh, <laughs> the studio wanted to test and uh, he wouldn't make a test but he said I will what I will do I'll make a tape a tape for it so he made a tape not of the great speech but of the uh, uh, dogs of war speech and it was wonderful uh, and if the canard spread around Hollywood uh, they said, well, Mancus and Husband, they've really been taken because Brando got his friend Olivier to make a test <laughs> <laughs> and sent it out, and that's what they heard, and they're going to get quite a surprise. <laughs> and of course, that was absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, the, the point I am trying to make is about ten days into rehearsals, Brando rehearsed with extraordinary zeal and, and, and knew his lines from the first day, none of that, but... Uh, and Gilgood was of enormous help to him. Gielgud naturally, fell madly in love with him and thought he was the greatest tragic actor of his time, which indeed he was, or could have been. He offered him a whole season in London, but anyway. Uh, about ten days into rehearsal, Brando came to me and said, can I talk to you? I, look, I've been working on this part, and I've discovered something, and it, it, it's bothered me a lot, but I, I think I've found the truth, he said you can't play between these lines, John. You've got to play the lines. <laughs> and he did, in fact, create a character. I mean, he created his own subtext. He created his own vision and version of Anthony. But once he, especially, yeah, yeah, he's dealing with a oration like that, but he suddenly realized that all his thinking and all his subtexts were fine, but in the end, it was the words that Shakespeare had written which he had to play. And this was an enormous discovery. And he accepted it and used it and uh, gave gave a remarkable form. Is
7: there is there a, a difference in terms of directors in terms of scripts between American plays which work with subtext and constant English plays where there were something I once did, um, Norman conquest, did it, you know, just the same from Norman conquest, and I've made the same discovery. There's no subtext here. Well, you know,
2: or... I don't think one is notorious for the subtext. But
7: I'm just saying, is there a schism in terms of directors and styles, American and British, in terms of
2: visual or actor oriented? Uh, English directors, I think, are more impatient with uh, uh, irrelevant preoccupations with subtext. Than I mean, subtext is just a phrase. Uh, I mean, if, if, if an actor has not uh, considered the coloration and the circumstances and the context of the part he's playing, he's not going to play the part properly. And, uh, uh, you mustn't use words like subtext as gospel. It means the meaning Sorry. of the line, yes. the, meaning. the meaning of the narrative.
3: And narrative that comes from the movie.
2: And and the character that's created. But uh, subtext can be an awful nuisance uh, to a director if the actor's preoccupied principally with the subtext at the expense of what he's got to play. He's got problems.
3: Well, you know, the English have got a highly trained group of comedic actors that they can go on. They actually have a comedy theatre where nothing but the comedy is done. And a British director who is going to produce a comedy, direct a comedy, he can draw from this marvellous group. And uh, we don't really have anything like that available. And so I expect when they come here, they find American actors who haven't had all this comedic training. maybe they do expect things to happen faster than things can, uh, especially if they're unfamiliar with ideas like a subtext which would benefit any play if one could find the right underlying meaning for each line. Michael Krain himself said that of the noise is also wonderful exchange between the director and the
6: actors. He's very tense. He's uh, said that to and do it, writer. How he's a director deals with his actors when they want to get off the train. That's a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, they all, work, <laughs> they
3: all work much more together because their their media is just up the road. I mean, geographically, if some English star decides wants to be in television or movies, they don't have to go 3,000 miles away. They just go, get in the car and drive for about an hour and they're there. Or if it's television, it's even closer than that. So in their great theatres, they play all the time. And
2: it's much easier for the directors. That has happened to a much greater extent. Yeah, no. Yes, it's great, but it is. The, uh, the interchange, the, the, the barriers between the media, which were built up and fortified by the studios for years, uh, are, are pretty well broken down. I, half the, three quarters of the good young actors I know are going from television to theatre, and the concert ring, you stuck in it. You feel
4: about me? Yeah you mm-hmm. see people like Samuel Beckett and Harold Pinter and David Hare who are directing their own works. Um, that's so oh, exciting. I, I saw Beckett's production in German of Waiting for Godot. Oh, well, there's
3: one thing that always frightens me about
4: yeah. their directing
3: their own work, because sometimes they write funny things and they don't know it. <laughs> and when somebody else comes in, they do see that, mm-hmm. and then bring that to
6: Yes. I just been back from London. I didn't see was I did see 18 plays in 18 days. <laughs> and the thing that was so thrilling to me is that each director did something that he wanted to do, and actors were able to do whatever the director asked of the actor. They, I'm I'm trained by the group theatre, so I I'm, I'm all for that. But I'm also all for the training that they get in England, the kind of way that the actors are able to do.
2: Like the only you know. difference in the training is they have much more opportunity to act. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and,
6: however, they do have greater facility, mostly. Like taking in the I don't know if you like him or you don't, but he did Wild Oats. He was divine in that. Then he did Coriolanus, which is my most favorite Shakespeare play, and I hated him in that because of the way that it was directed. But he had, they had a choice. And every night, whenever you went to see something, like I saw seagull, it was divine. I'd seen many productions of seagull. But the way they chose to do it, the way the director chose for Vanessa Redgrave to play a love scene with Jonathan Price was just phenomenal.
5: The dare when
6: went on the stage. Then they do some musicals that they don't know what to do with. And they don't all have good singing voices. I mean, but the thing is that they have greater opportunity, and I think People should beg, borrow, or steal money and go over there and see what they can do. I didn't see everything, but I saw a great deal. And you
2: can see, it's like they had the memorial
6: service for um, Michael Redgrave, and John Gilbert was there and taking
2: Ashcroft. And, uh, and I was
6: there. Our yeah. company was there. I'm sure a lot Thank of people were there. Very much. But isn't it, uh, yeah. isn't it um, I think it's outrageous what Vanessa Redgrave did socially with the money that I didn't know about. But uh, I don't want to get into that. <laughs> is, there, is there a difference? How do we, know? we don't have a fabulous Seagull so, being done in Syracuse or in Cincinnati. We you know, do. Our theater
4: is very vast here, the regional theater. We may be having a sensational Seagull at Cincinnati no. Playhouse in Clark,
6: Bob Yalvin, or,
4: or uh, mm-hmm. at Arvin Brown's Theater. It's just our
6: country it's so vast. It's an enormous the national theater, theater. Yes. an enormous
5: Something you said earlier intrigues me. You said uh, when you first uh, looked at Mass Appeal, you weren't quite sure what the play was about. And on the other hand, uh, I've been reading reviews of the film Plenty, which is based on the stage play. And I've learned a lot more about the play from the critics reviewing the film. And I'm wondering in terms of subtext and in terms of character and in terms of scene by scene, how much you go into how much you as a director share with your cast while you know it and they haven't arrived at it yet
3: oh, how much do you hold as much back? as i think is helpful when i actually found out what to be about for me that i did share that with them and they used it as, as much as it's helpful for them to use it.
5: sometimes uh, in my own experiences the actors Want to know, and yet they don't want to know. It all depends if it's given them in a
3: way that they can do. It's, it's a question
5: of usefulness. Because it's no good if a
3: director, however you know, interesting and amusing it might be, just theorises. That's what I meant earlier on yes. about saying some directors are great at giving you things to do.
5: Yes.
3: Uh, Richard, Richard Maltby, a director of Ray Bond, is great at giving you things to do.
5: How would you describe a thing to do? Give an well, example, for instance.
3: A thing to do in a given scene,
4: I don't know, a have to do. Oh, I the see, in a particular yes. Yes. something to do. So the wine to... bottle business in Massfield, is is that his invention? That's or? my yes. invention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think it's often nice not to know, I and mean, you say this is a wonderful director, or wonderful actor, and without this director they wouldn't. I think the mystery of those weeks of rehearsal of whose contribution came from where, yeah. I just think it's fine that we don't know. We have critics saying assigning blame and credit and we know enough for fact that so-and-so invented it. The intermeshing of it well, seems to be... the critics don't know. The critics don't know. No, they don't know.
2: No. Uh, and so... And in, in the first place, they shouldn't even pretend or try to know. Mm-hmm. That's not their job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Their job mm-hmm. is to criticize and describe what what they have seen and uh, who, and th- th- there's a great tendency among critics in the provinces it's even worse to uh, have observations on the casting of the play and it should have been this one um, and th- there's a a, a woman in, in Los Angeles who spent uh, who wrote the review and then wrote three more pieces urging the director to get rid of Patty LuPone uh, you know, uh, it was none of her business. She could have said, I hate her, I don't like her, but he has she shared... And they uh, partly because they have the good they have the the future of their particular theater at heart, they critics do find themselves now. Uh, nowadays the one really strong objection I think they want to have them. Uh, assuming the uh, function of the producer or the director which is not their function a script and certainly they have no way of knowing and shouldn't even ask who, who contributed what what they're concerned with is the final result it should be. we're
1: running to the end uh, any final well, I want to thank you
0: very much. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theater Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at Wing dot org